Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today we have Rex and Blake uh, coming to you from uh, the test world, which is super exciting. Uh, I have uh, read a lot of stuff that Rex has worked on over the years, so it's really, uh, really good chance for me to get a chance to uh, talk to Rex, kind of pick his brain, and then uh, hear what uh, Blake does too, because Rex is uh, F-16s, and then Blake is a uh, a test engineer, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, uh, but welcome back, everybody, to the podcast, and and we'll get right into it, uh, talking to these guys. So, Rex, go ahead and tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. All right. Thanks for having us, Vader. This is uh, this is exciting. Uh, yeah, this is my first time on a podcast, so hopefully I'll, I'll do you right, so to speak. Uh, all right. So, I uh, grew up in Michigan, uh, northern Michigan. Um, Went to uh, Holt Lake High School, graduated in 1993. Yes, I am old. Uh, went to the academy. Uh, I was one of the first uh, people from, from my small little school to end up going to the Air Force Academy. Graduated in 97. Uh, actually got an engineering degree. I couldn't believe it. Uh, barely passed. I was one of those guys who made it through mid-run. Uh, pretty low GPA. Uh, got lucky. Got a pilot slot. Ended up going to... Uh, doing a little bit of casual status up at uh, McCord Air Force Base back when they had C-141s, uh, which was pretty eye-opening. Spent eight months up there uh, skiing, uh, learning a little bit about the Air Force uh, and the heavy world. Um, and no offense to the heavy community because those guys have an awesome job, but knew it was not for me. Um, went to Columbus pilot training, um, had a great time in Columbus, Mississippi, learned how to fly in the weather. Uh, got a fighter out of there, was super excited. We had a pretty small class of only uh, four guys in T-38s. Two of us went to fighters. Two of us uh, were essentially FAPES, and uh, those guys ended up going to fighters eventually. Uh, from there, standard uh, Luke RTU, 63rd, first assignment out to Aviano, then uh, on to Osan as a uh, IP. And then uh, from there, I got picked up to WIC. The class of 05 at uh, weapons school with the Tomahawks there, <clears throat> and then went to uh, Cannon Air Force Base, beautiful Cannon by the Sea. I was in the uh, Block 30 squadron, so the Mighty Crusaders 523, and uh, did not spend a whole lot of time there. Uh, while I was there, uh, we deployed. I went downrange uh, to Bagram Air Force, or sorry, Balad Air Force Base. Um, as the uh, wing patch then uh, left and pretty much PCS within a week to go back to Nellis to be an instructor. Uh, that was circa 07, uh, right when the housing market was doing great. So I bought bought high, sold low when I left in 10. Uh, and I left in 10 to go to a test. And uh, honestly, I've been in test since then. So uh, separated from active duty in 2012. Uh, on Christmas day, it was my Christmas present to myself. I became a reservist and, uh, have been here at Eglin doing various test missions and, uh, part of the CTF since 2016. And, uh, yeah, that's my story. I'll pass it off to Blake. 
Yeah. Well, before we, we get to Blake, that's just, uh, so much good stuff there. I, uh, it's funny before we were chatting, I was like, I'm, I'm actually a literal nervous to talk to Rex because he's been doing tests longer than I flew the F-16. And I was like, gosh, this is, this is good stuff. So there's a lot of, a lot of good knowledge that I'm, I'm definitely going to be look, looking forward to get, but Blake, go ahead and give us your background. Thanks again, Vader, for having us on. Um, I uh, hail from the Southeast U.S., just a smattering of states um, until I went to college at Auburn University and uh, graduated there um, about seven years ago. Uh, have been in acquisitions and engineering since uh, the Air Force allowed me to join the ranks. And so uh, was out at Hill Air Force Base uh, before getting here to Eglin. And when I was at Hill, my uh, primary focus was air-to-ground weapons, air-to-ground munitions, particularly the small diameter bomb and uh, the joint direct attack munition, the JDAM. Uh, also did some work with the paveway. Um, and really my focus uh, when I was just cutting my teeth as a uh, program manager and uh, really a systems engineer because a good program manager is going to know both uh, requirements, systems engineering and finance. Um, when I was cutting my teeth out there um, on those programs, um, I learned the valuable lesson of knowing the con-ups of the system that you're going after and knowing the warfighter's perspective of the system that you are charged to manage. And if you know the warfighter's perspective, um, it was it was so eye-opening to see how easy the job became because when you satisfy the mission need, um, that's really the most important aspect of being um, in acquisitions. Is. And so I uh, had, the, had the opportunity to do that um, and uh, get in with another program um, for six months while I was there called the Advanced Tactical Acquisition Corps, which took me all over the United States for six months answering a uh, kind of a task force problem for half A5A. And uh, that was essentially a standing up a uh, an organic wargaming capability there at half A5 to uh, go after the four or five year um, beyond FIDAT problems uh, that they were trying to solve as they did force design. Um, had the opportunity to do a uh, another program with uh, U.S. SOCOM and uh, their acquisitions and understand more of how they do business um, and really just trying to get as much experience so I could bring that to whatever my next assignment was um, on how to do business better and understand the warfighter's mentality um, as best as I could. And so luckily I was able to get an assignment here to Eglin Air Force Base. I, on my RIP, it said Operational Flight Program Combined Test Force. What the heck does that even mean? It doesn't say squadron, where am I going? Um, I did request the job, but I was just still curious at the end of the day, even after talking to leadership here um, about the job and uh, had the opportunity to work F-15QA um, while I uh, was sitting outside the vault and then was blessed the opportunity to be the um, F-16 flight commander, what we'll call it, um, and uh, work with guys like Rex and all of our other reservist pilots, active duty pilots, and our test engineers um, who really are, in my opinion, just the most hardworking, the best team, um, the highest standard of excellence dudes in uh, in fighter test. And um, did that and uh, was recently pushed into an ADO position. And so having the opportunity to be a, an assistant director of operations, my goal is to harness the O in operations and not so much the assistant portion um, so I can still stay um, 
feet to the fire with the guys. And so that brings me uh, to my current state. Well, nice. Well, uh, I'm glad to have both of you guys. And then, so for everybody, obviously, I've interacted a little bit with the test world, uh, but I'll kind of add some uh, color, and then I kind of want you guys to give the background. So uh, the F-16 is probably where we do the most tests, just because it's one of our cheaper platforms to operate, and then one of our most uh, prolific assets. Uh, So kind of for both of you to get both of your perspectives on a day-to-day in the test world. Uh, how do you, what are you kind of doing? What are you working on and who are you talking to while you're doing that stuff? All right, well, I'll start. Um, so for me, uh, my position is test director. Um, it's an interesting job here in that I'm not the boss. Uh, I am, I'm the guy that uh, takes the spears, uh, when we do things wrong. Um, and then I try to give credit to the uh, to the team when we when we do stuff right. Right, um, we got a really small team, about thirty dudes. Um, as you know, Blake here, he's uh, he's one of our he, he was our flight chief, so he ran uh, before he became an ADO. He ran the day to day ops, uh, and it's really really awesome uh, kind of setup that we have. We are a dual MAGCOM unit, so we report to AFMC and ACC. Uh, there's good and bad to that. Uh, our leadership is usually um, split between DT and OT. So AFMC is your blue patch, your traditional test pilot. Uh, and then uh, typically the command is shared with uh, ACC gray patch, typically uh, a weapon school grad. The OFPCTF, a lot of uh, letters there. Blake already told you what the acronym is. is, is uh, essentially operational flight program. That's software, right? And then combined test force. Uh, it was an Eagle unit, uh, originally started back in 2012, uh, Vipers joined, uh, I'm sorry, it was actually 2002 when it was stood up. Uh, Vipers joined pretty late in 2016, uh, and the whole point is integrated test. So getting back to what is my day-to-day ops tempo like, um, one of my guys uh, jokingly calls me the uh, business development dude for the Air Force F-16. Uh, I, I got to remind myself daily that, uh, stay in my lane and, and I'm a test director. So I got to make sure that the software and the hardware that's going into the airplane, uh, is managed and executed correctly. Right. So, uh, with that, you know, as a test director, we, we engage a lot with, um, half, uh, Pentagon folks, uh, mostly the A5 and the eights, right. So that's your requirements, um, and your features type stuff. ACC A5, uh, A, right? And then A5, A16 is the Viper Division branch. Again, ACC requirements now at the uh, lower level below the Pentagon. Um, and then <clears throat> we also reach out to all the various agencies. So the program office, uh, there's many. As Blake said, he came from weapons programs. Uh, the Viper has their own program office, uh, Air Force Lifecycle Management Center, um, and then uh, alphabet soup after right wam is where vipers live uh, and there's a whole bunch of people the joke is you know whenever you want to blame something you blame the spell and all the warfighters are like well who is that guy or gal and uh it's it's not it's it's a it's a group it's a group of people uh they do amazing work uh most of the time uh and then they have a lot of struggles too as, as you'll probably hear as we go on with the whole acquisition cycle uh, we deal with software design. The F-16 is incredibly unique in the fact that we have organic software developed by um, the government. 
So uh, recently just out at Hill uh, Air Force Base, and we interact with the 309th SWAG software uh, engineering group. Uh, and within the group, there's squadrons, just like you would have an operational uh, CAF squadron or our operational test squadron or developmental test squadron. They have a squadron mostly run by civil servants, a few contractors, and very, very, very few military. Uh, and they're in charge of developing the code uh, for the OFP, which is really unique. You know, they have uh, four major subsystems at their control out there. The MMC, which is the Mission Modular Computer, um, the PDG, otherwise to Viper folks known as the uh, MFDs, right? Which is the multifunction displays. It's run by a core computer. Uh, and then the front control, right? Which is where we do our CNI and all the, uh, as the Viper community knows, that's your left thumb. And um, we also code the mighty APG-68 uh, mech scan radar. And, you know, that thing is, uh, is done pretty well in its lifetime, but uh, getting ready to be replaced. So we're, we're starting to work on the new ESA now. Uh, and that's coded by uh, a contractor out at Northrop. Um, and then the uh, awesome part of the, the best part of this whole job is taking a product from beginning uh, to end taking it and delivering it to the CAF, uh, which is where I've had most of my interaction with the, uh, the Viper community and the, the bros and the gals out there doing God's work uh, with the mighty Viper. And that's uh, going and doing road shows. So, you know, we get to interact um, not only, you know, once a year doing a road show, but uh, we've set up um, essentially a group me uh, even that uh, we communicate out to the CAF leaders, mostly the weapons officers and the senior instructors. And it's kind of like their uh, dial a chat and uh, we've got a lot of test dudes on there and it's uh, been really productive to kind of like uh, squash woms to help answer questions, to help put them in touch with people um, in various places that we know of that they don't to help them out when they're, when they're struggling with, you know, loading new OFPs or something's just not working right. Uh, and that's kind of like the new norm, right? Um, you know, most of the younger generation out there is is all about the uh, you know the interwebs and the books of faces and stuff. Uh, not me, right? I'm well over forty, so I'm just I'm just trying to keep up. So having young guys uh, out here to help with all that. Uh, but at the end of the day, man, that was a long long answer to a very short question. I saw. I'm sorry about that, but uh, we test the airplane. That's what we do. <laughs> the. Uh... Well, and one of the things, uh, before we hear kind of exactly what Blake, uh, is doing kind of on the day to day, can you explain the differences and maybe Blake can, uh, between DT and OT? So obviously test pilots, a blue patch, like what are they more focused on versus what is operational test more focused on? Yeah, I can take that Vader. Um, so for a, uh, developmental test versus operational test, uh, we're looking um, specifically from a DT's perspective at uh, spec compliance. Um, really at the heart of the matter, um, whenever you um, take an F-16 out for a safety of flight mission, uh, so we just flew a recent uh, um, software tape release uh, just on Friday, and um, we weren't throwing the F-16 in an operational environment. We were not performing um, operational uh, maneuvers on the aircraft. We were running it through um, safety um, specification compliance. 
And that's essentially what developmental test is. Um, it is to ensure that the aircraft is meeting um, what the spec says it should do. Now, operationally, that's not always the case. Um, whenever um, the spec says one thing, well, sometimes and most of the time, because no plan survives first contact, you need that system to perform something else. And so how do you ring it out? It's uh, similar to what Paco Benita said on your show a few weeks ago. Um, you take it in an operational environment, whether single ship, two ship, um, or in a large force exercise. Um, Black flag is an excellent idea and an excellent um, personification of that of the operational environment that you're going to test in. And so um, we do that here through the 85th Test and Evaluation Squadron, similar to the uh, 422 Test and Evaluation Squadron, our um, brother counterparts out there uh, at Nellis. And we're just ringing out the Viper day in and day out, not dedicated missions specific to the OFP, but all of our pilots are coming back after every mission and they're talking about how the OFP is performing, how the other ancillary systems and sensors and pods are, uh, are performing in um, the operational environments that they're throwing them against, whether that be in our local LFEs um, with our F-22, F-35, T-38, at air folks down the road, or just our daily ops amongst Eagles and F-16s going at it, um, to include the new F-15EX that, uh, that we throw in the mix every day. And so that is real, truly the difference between DT and OT. And what we've found is that they are not um, sequestered from each other. They actually have touch points that bring them much closer together than how we used to perform tests um, just a decade ago. Um, particularly before the Viper was integrated into the OFP CTF. And what we found was this concept of integrated test where there are so many overlapping tentacles of DT and OT that you can do the job faster. You can have a higher fidelity of operator satisfaction on the front end because the later you integrate that operator satisfaction, that user experience, um, the less effective, operationally effective system you're going to have on the back end. Whereas you focus on spec compliance for DT, you're all about OSS&E, operational suitability, safety, and effectiveness, really that operational suitability and effectiveness on the back end. And so if you can blend those together, you're going to save money, you're going to save schedule, and you're going to be able to get a better product out the door um, to, the, to the brothers and sisters of the CAF. Um, I think that may have answered the question. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it, out, as an outsider, it seems like you would be able to streamline testing. You would streamline the process to actually make it a faster uh, rollout between DT and OT. I mean, one of the things, uh, Rex, I know you've seen this, is the, the GBU-54 parent-mounted page. That uh, So for everybody who hasn't had to deal with this, it's the wing of the F-16, and then you have a... Uh, a rack that the GBU-54 gets attached to and the interface for the pilot as an outsider, it seems very much like what an engineer would write rather than what a pilot would want. Uh, so I could, I could imagine that's probably one of those situations where it probably didn't have a lot of end user feedback in the, in the rollout of that. Yeah, Vader, that, that's a great example. And that's one of the things that we're trying really hard um, here 
And when I say here, I, I'm really referring to the big collective. We call it an IPT, right? Integrated product team um, to make sure that uh, not only is it us, like our small team providing some of the feedback and our team is, you know, a mix of DT and OT guys. So we do have our blue patch DT pilots right here day to day with us. Um, but the thing that we do that's really cool, I think, uh, is we have established what we call Warfighter Council. Um, so we started this about three or four years ago. And our IPT is, you know, your four core areas, right? Talked about that I kind of, we kind of interact with here. So you got flight test, which is us. You got the development group, uh, Hill. You've got the SPO uh, that, you know, essentially manages the contract and, and the airframe overall. They have their own test division and uh, acquisitions division. Uh, and then we bring in the, and then requirements, right? So ACC is brings the paycheck, uh, as they go through the palm process, right? Program order of memorandum, I think. Uh, and that's how you get money, right? Uh, that's your PPB and E. If you want to know what that is, talk to someone like Blake, not me. I'm a, I'm a fighter pod, but anyway, <laughs> uh, we bring in the warfighters, uh, quarterly, um, we do it uh, in two forms and fashion. So two two times a year, and it's usually fall. So uh, September, we're going to go out to Hill. Uh, and then the spring, we go back out to Hill, and the warfighters are invited to come out. And we go through about a three-day process where we spend half a day getting them spun up on what is in the current OFP. We're working on a test. Uh, and then we go through um, essentially what we're calling agile requirements. So, you know, agile with a big A is uh, is the new buzzword. Uh, if you're at all familiar with software design, it's getting things out quicker. That is the bottom line, right? To summarize. Um, but when we bring the warfighters out, uh, we bring, we try to bring out the experienced dudes that can speak for the unit, can speak for uh, the wing, can speak for the MAGCOM. Uh, and we really, really want their inputs. Um, even though we're doing this quarterly, we, we actually really want to start reaching out and we've tried to start reaching out digitally um, through emails, through um, we use CV2 and we've started a SharePoint where guys can uh, tip into our processes and our agile backlogs to see what's on the list for the future. They can look one, two, three years down the future and see what we're thinking. Um, so that's a really unique part of this whole process that we've started here that we're really proud of. Um, we We end up managing a lot of it, even though um, you know, every every player of the IPT has their piece. Uh, I think it's really useful to make sure that you're bringing those warfighters in for sanity checks. Like you said, you know, I've I've been here for a long time. Uh, I'm a reservist. The last time I went to combat in an airplane, you know, there was it was like three presidents ago. Uh, so I rely heavily on uh, the CAF and you know the guys that come in and out of the 85th and the 40th and in the fortitude to keep me honest, uh, to keep us honest, because we have more than just myself here as the old hat reservist. Um, so we really want this to be an airplane um, for the COCOMs designed by the warfighter. Uh, and we have no idea what the COCOMs want because we really don't engage with them other than Air Combat Command. That's our that's our primary boss. Uh, so it's really important to get the guys from Indo-PACOM and the guys from USAFE down here uh, as well as obviously, uh, you know, your one CONUS base and then your guard units that we support as well that fly, fly the post block, right? We didn't really mention this yet, but we we here at uh, Eglin only test post block aircraft, right? So about 900 F-16s in the USAF inventory, 111 are post blocks right now. 
Uh, and of that, you got about six guard units uh, that fly those post block aircraft. Uh, traditionally, they're they're kind of handled by AATC, that's your Air National Guard, Air Force Reserve Command Test Center, down at Tucson. Uh, we interact with those guys as you know, participating test organization and or uh, they support us, you know, depending on who's got the lead on what program. Uh, but they come with their own unique um, money and their own unique requirements, which make it uh, interesting interactions, right? So, um, yeah, man, like the Warfighter Council is something that I think is, uh, it's still pretty new. Uh, we have a buy-in, we have an executive as well. So we have literally assigned MOA by all the O6s of the uh, IPT that have agreed to let us uh, work with Agile agile requirements and get these things in. And we can change things that go into the airplane uh, as fast as a couple of weeks. I mean, literally we're, we're, um, we're doing two-week scrums. We have been doing two-week scrums on the center display unit, which has its own core computer. Uh, started out as a guard-only program. Now it's uh, matriculating down into all the CAF jets. So uh, proud to say that, you know, we've got Masawa, uh, Shaw, and Spangdalm jets all now with Eason CDU. Uh, and those will start to nice. propagate out to the rest of the CAF. So, um, like I said, center display unit, you go from two little 5x5-inch five MFDs to uh, now you get the same two little 5x5s, five but you get a big 6x8 uh, MFD uh, that does a lot of support and a lot of connections and a lot of powerful processing uh, with some really cool things that we have planned in the future. So. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's the, uh, so I, this doesn't sound like a lot of hours to you probably Rex, cause you've been in the jet a few years more than me, but I missed out on 1500 hours just by like 30 hours or 20 some hours. And I missed out on the ESA, uh, flying a Viper with an ESA by about a month and a half. Uh, so I assume you've spent a lot of time. How, how is it for the, so everybody who doesn't really understand it. So the APG-68 was a mechanically scanned uh, ray radar, and now we have an AESA, so the electronically scanned array, uh, much more capable radar. Uh, so how is the old uh, APG-83? Uh, yeah, man, it's great. We call it, um, nice. Northrop called it the Sabre, right? So it's a scaled agile yep. beam radar. Um, in doing so, Northrop made a really good business um business deal here they they made a very when i say very cheap relatively cheap uh but scalable radar that could go easily into the current spaces and that's why the program is successful um so we don't require any new cooling we don't require um any new power and those are the things that usually kill a uh, a major design system like you know like the viper who Comac calls us the shock absorber of the uh, calf, right? So the Viper is, you know, the jack of all trades, the master of none has always been, we've all struggled to get money. We've all struggled to uh, find our purpose. Um, but yeah, the ESA is really great. You know, we, we got uh, healthy with the ESA from a Juon turned Gion, which I still don't understand where the J comes in since it's not joint, it's USAF only. Um, but anyway, the, the guard through Northcom uh, made a ploy to uh, help for ACA alert units um, that they needed uh, a credible piece of equipment to go defend the United States of America, right? With Homeland Defense Mission, with uh, you know base defense. Uh, so the first 72 ESAs went to all guard units, uh, and that's kind of how the money dropped. And uh, and then 
uh, that was essentially, you know, you got to got to break everything into phases. Um, it's kind of like the underwear gnomes, right? From uh, was that? Uh, no, not not from Snow White, right? They had uh, phase one, you know, steal underpants. Phase three, make profit. What's phase two? I don't know, but uh, pretty sure we just put more aces in guard units. Um, but anyway, yeah, we're in phase three now. We're making profit, and the the regaf is starting to see some aces, which is great. So, uh, yeah, we've got probably about just under 100 installed. Uh, and the plan is to ramp up to a little over 400 uh, into the post blocks. The pre blocks will have um, probably 100, and they'll probably get their last ESA right as their airframes are retiring, which, go do the math on that one. That's going to be fun to uh, put a, you know, $2 million ESA radar and something that's going right to the boneyard. But hopefully we've got a plan to uh, take those out and get them, uh, get them, brand new radar put in the post blocks but but we'll see and that's that's some of the things that we try to make sure that all of the people that we interact with kind of know the truth and they think about like the repercussions of the decisions that are getting made uh going to the east though man it's great so um north provided a super awesome product uh we can sar map now and we um most of the isa is essentially off the shelf parts and pieces of the F-22 and the F-35. So we're uh, 90 per 80 to 90% common in parts between uh, F-22, so APG-77, and uh, I'd say about 80% common in software with F-35. The cool thing about our radar is it's modern compared to F-35 and, uh, and APG-77 with F-22. We have better processors. So what we lack in power through the the sheer physics of a small array, low power, low cooling, uh, we make up with processing power. So we have some pretty cool things that we can do. Most of them are classified. I uh, can't talk about them in this uh, forum, but if you uh, if you ever flown a Block 50, uh, you can you can pretty much bank on being twice as good as a Block 50 radar, uh, just in overall physics, and then um, and then all the other stuff you can do now with SAR map at long range and being all the uh, employ through the weather. So. That's a pretty cool capability that the uh, the warfighters are going to get, uh, and then when you start tying that with some of the other things that we're working on, I think uh, I think the Viper could be pretty awesome. Uh, we are slated to still be around out to 2040, uh, planning a sundown around 46. So uh, yeah, we got a we got a lot of work to do if we're going to try to keep up with um, you know China and Russia. So we're working as hard as we can there. Well, I was, uh, I was lucky to fly, uh, the block fifties in Misawa and then fly the block fifties at McIntyre, um, for or 52s technically at uh, McIntyre. And, uh, I would always make this argument I was like, the F-16 is the only platform that has a targeting pod, can carry harm, can go into the mez. It could pretty much do everything except have an ESA and SARMAP, you know, and if you just put this on an F-16 it would be a game changer because if you think if you go out to a red flag to this LFE, odds are the vast, like the majority of the fighters are going to be F-16s because we just have the most of them. Uh, so if you put ESAs in every single one of those, I, I just, it's, it made sense to me uh, that we would do that. It, it sadly it just seemed like it took a long time to actually get them there. Yeah, there's a lot of politics involved. I don't want to go there. I don't have a whiskey yet. I only talk politics with whiskey. <laughs> um yeah, man, I've, I've, uh, I, I usually come to work, uh, expecting a leg sweep every day. Uh, some days I 
I, I don't walk away feeling beat, beaten ahead from decisions coming from down high. And those are my good days. Uh, a lot of days you just see, you know, I've seen it all, right? You know, we started with capes a long time ago, which was you know, when I first got to test in 2010, we started writing the ESA CDD. It's the Capabilities Description Document. So if you ever want to like learn about JSIDs, talk to uh, an acquisition professional like Blake over here. But that, no kidding, 10 is when we started writing down what the requirements were for the ESA. And here we are like just getting the first ESA to a Spang and a Masala jet in 2022. Uh, man, that system is 100% broken. Um, you know, I wish it was faster for for the, you know, the, the dude at bros uh, out in the calf. Uh, we're trying to make it faster, but it, it's just a, you know, let's uh, log into a new podcast that talks about this. It's it's a problem that you guys are, you and Bender are trying to tackle and it's, it's awesome, man. So that's, that's why we're, we're excited to be on your show. So yeah, the East is great. Yeah, no, we, have, we appreciate you guys taking the time. Yeah, man. I do have bad news for you as a weasel guy. The HTS is, uh, is essentially in sustainment and about to, uh, to go, you know, the way of the Dodo bird, man. Uh, it's, it's starting to age out. They're not putting a whole lot of money into, uh, what we call it DMS diminishing manufacturing supply, like fixing some of the, the cards. So probably around 2030 ish, uh, we start to phase out. And oh, by the way, that's when half and ACC and, you know, all the big bobs, right. Those are the guys that are, um, telling us that, you know, seed is no longer the block 50s primary mission. Um, so, uh, block four. F-35, it's going to be the saving grace. We'll take over that mission. Uh, and then we'll probably be relegated to a little bit more of uh, everything but seat is what we're told. Yeah. <laughs> so can't wait yeah, to plan well, for that. I, I, I am, yeah. Well, I imagine it'll be something like, uh, like the, you know, when the F-16 took the seed mission from the F-4, like there'll probably be a period of time where, you know, Block 50s are just harm trucks for 35s and stuff like that, but. So, uh, so Blake, one question I have for you is talking about acquisitions. Uh, so let's talk some of the constraints and then some of the kind of, some of the good things in the acquisition, acquisition side, and just kind of the process of developing and onboarding and taking something from an idea to getting it to the, to the end users. Yeah, I think, uh, especially where we are today, understanding, uh, the pacing threat, um, is no longer, um, Iraq 1991, even though we still uh, fly those same missions, um, we're going up against a threat that is moving exponentially faster than we are. And so we have to get our acquisitions process faster as well. Um, and what we see um, is the usage within program office, um, offices, even in particular um, the S-16, of adopting some of these uh, quicker, what we call rapid, um, protocols of getting stuff to prototype and then uh, facilitating that even further and maturing it uh, technologically and then eventually getting it out the door. Um, but the uh, the biggest holdup, um, the LIMFAC um, that I've ran into um, in just some of the projects that I've been able to uh, sit on um, is that there are that that leaders, rightfully so and sometimes not rightfully so, um, we'll hold up um, manpower, we'll hold up other resources um, because they have uh, their own um, legacy fiefdom to protect. And that's both good and bad. Um, but if we, are no, if we are not flexible 
in how we look at advancing technology that's uh, down the road, everything from uh, next generation electronic warfare, um, in particular to the F-16 and other EW systems, um, EOIR defeat mechanisms um, that uh, that we're constantly trying to um, integrate um, into some of our defense systems. That's uh, that's what's going to bite us um, in the rear is our inability to be flexible with how we manage our program offices to adapt to a uh, to a faster opponent, and uh, also the inability to move faster. Um, and it's not necessarily the speed because you can hit road bumps, trip, and you're going to um, screw your entire program over. Um, and sometimes we see that with some of our um, next-gen weapon systems that we're trying to test right now um, is that sometimes going 100 miles an hour isn't that great when you can go 80 miles an hour instead and uh, you'll be able to uh, actually get your you know system off of your surrogate platform or you'll be able to um, thresh you know flush out any um, anomalies in your system better and so those are really some of the limb facts um, I think we also need to do a better job just from um, an acquisitions personnel cultivation standpoint um, you may not know this, but the Air, the Air Force is the only uh, service that uh, garners its acquisitions officers straight out of their commissioning sources, and uh, they are unrestricted officers, uh, whereas the Navy and the Army and the Marine Corps, all of their acquisitions officers are restricted line officers, uh, meaning that once they're in that career field, uh, they're no longer coming out of it, but they do start in other career fields prior. So that gives them a leg up on knowing the operational environment um, that they are going to be the program manager for. Um, a lot of uh, your NAVAIR, your Naval Aviation Acquisitions um, Officers, are former Naval Flight Officers or former Naval Aviators. Um, I know a Marine Officer who is a Marine Tactical Air Control Party member, or Anglico as they call them in the Marines. And so, um, it's as I was just saying earlier, it's very key uh, for acquisitions officers to understand warfighting. And if you don't, you're very reactive instead of proactive as an acquisitions officer. And so with the Air Force, having um, an organically produced acquisitions officer core straight from the commissioning sources, we need to do a better job at imparting uh, warfighting principles to our acquisitions officers so they understand better um, what's going on. Test is one of the best places to do that because you are interacting um, with warfighters and folks who were warfighters but they're still in the game. You are understanding um, the warfighting constraints. You have to understand the mission in order, in, order, in order to make sure that the object you are testing meets the um, missionized spec for the system and so test is a great place um, and I'm very fortunate to be here. Um, and so we have to find a way to proliferate that. And there's some programs that are going after that within the acquisitions uh, officer world. So. Well, and I think that that's kind of glaring in some ways. Uh, you look at, uh, so MIDS jitters, you know, MIDS J is a great example where we had this very long horizon on when it need to be uh, implemented and nobody cared, you know, until pretty much, you know, the 11th hour where the Navy 
was like, hey, this is a thing. We should probably knock it out in the near future. And sure enough, they did. And now we look like fools uh, for everybody who's not tracking. So Link 16 is a data link that we use between uh, our aircraft so we can see where each other are and, and what are each other trying to achieve. Uh, and there's, you know, there are limitations now because we didn't handle it well uh, in the rollout of uh, a new terminal. So it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. And I wonder that's not constraints, you know, that's just a, maybe a lack of effort or a lack of knowledge. Like you said, uh, Blake, I, I'm interested to get your opinion on. So I know how Rex and I view the F 16, obviously flying it, but how do you view the F 16 more as like, uh, from your perspective, you know, as acquisitions or just the test side of it? Um, just how, what are its, uh, benefits and what are its kind of limitations? Yeah. So whenever, um, I was, uh, over the JDAM program, uh, the S16 was uh, my preferred surrogate platform. Whenever we were doing upgrades to uh, the anti-jam receiver, whenever we were throwing on uh, new frontal sensors on the JDAM, um, that saved me a lot of money because the Viper is a, a much cheaper platform and it gets the job done. And so we would always turn to the F16. And so um, initial perception of the F16 is this thing is a workhorse and it really is the workhorse. Um, I'm a, a big reader on uh, maneuver theory, maneuver warfare theory, um, big John Boyd fan, um, like the Marines of old. Um, and I actually mentioned to Rex uh, while we were flying the other day um, that, uh, that the, what the F-16 brings um, and how it was designed uh, was to be um, not, not just a workhorse, but it was designed to be a, uh, a transient aircraft, an aircraft that can go from doing one thing to another, back to another thing very quickly to mess with the mental models of the adversary. And it's also a cheap airplane to procure, so we were able to buy in mass. And um, quantity has a quality of its own. Therefore, a transient aircraft with a lot of mass, um, to me, that would scare me as an enemy to know that this very adaptable system um, in the hands of very competent people um, there's a lot of them out there. Instead of having to defeat, you know, let's say the the 40 F-22s that we'll be able to flo- throw up on a day one scenario because of the availability rate, my goodness, I also have to contend with hundreds of uh, of Vipers um, at most. And so, um, I I'm a very big fan of what the F-16 um, brings to the fight. Its adaptability, like you were saying earlier. Um, being um, the only jet to um, go and execute multiple missions to include the seed mission um, and turn around and go and fight another different mission after that. Um, That keeps an adversary on their toes. And if you can get into the moral and mental dilemma, uh, the mental framework of uh, the enemy and create dilemmas, um, that's when you can knock them off, uh, off their heels. And so that's really what the F-16 means to me. It, it presents problems to the enemy if we treat the aircraft right. And what I mean by that is, you know, not being 15 years late to the ESA game. That's not being, you know, a decade late, um, really more than a decade to um, better electronic protection and electronic attack capabilities and uh, being late to advanced weapon capabilities. Um, so if we can continue to outfit the F-16 which is incredibly adaptable from a, a, a software integration standpoint um, and from a hardware integration standpoint, 
this thing, it, it, it's so lethal. And then you have hundreds of them um, that will be able to go and uh, create all sorts of problems for the enemy from different angles instead of a few coming from one focused angle. And th I tell you, that, that, that keeps people up. Yeah, when I would, uh, I agree. I mean, I think we are formidable because of the might of all of the things that we have, not specifically one platform, uh, you know, standing alone. Rex, I'd say, uh, you know, a lot of people you can, you can kind of use maybe the platitude of like, this isn't your, uh, your grandpa's F-16. So over the years, obviously the F-16 is, has changed so much from the first F-16, the A models that rolled off uh, the line. Uh, and then obviously as of recently, you've been a lot, part of a lot of the testing and the development what do you think have been some of the biggest game changers for F-16 capabilities up to now? And then what do you think is kind of in the hopper? What are you guys working on that is another game changer of the future for the F-16 to keep it in the fight till 2040? Those are good questions, Bader. <clears throat> um, Lockheed's not going to like this, uh, but the answer to your first question <laughs> is when we went organic. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, the Eglin... Uh, test enclave down here, CTF. We we uh, we work in the same vault spaces with the Eagle dudes. Uh, and one of the one of the problems that they still face is contractor, um, you know, delays. Contractor, you know, contractors are inevitably you got to have them. They provide a, a specialty, but at the same time, they can definitely slow things down, right? Um, so Lockheed. Um, has done some great work. They've made a great airplane, but they also made it pretty hard um, at times to kind of modify the software. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, Hill has been great. Their uh, their ability to rapidly adapt uh, to our processes and uh, help us with software enhancements have been fantastic. Um, AutoGCast has been revolutionary. It provides zero, zero warfighter capability, but what it's done is it saves, uh, I think, 10 airplanes and 11 pilots. Uh, lots of podcasts about AutoGCast. Um, and then, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the platform itself, like just the things that we have that we're fielding right now um, is, is amazing. The CDU, the ESA, the things that we're working on, uh, the fact that we're uh, incorporating JASM, we're doing some pretty cool stuff in the future with JASM to make it more dynamic um, because right now it's pretty static uh, as a you know good strategic pre-planned tool. But uh, as you know, the warfighter gets a belt, right? They can move pretty easy. So we're, we're going to need to uh, um, to go and uh, find them quickly and take them out, right? And you need a very specialized weapon to do that. It's been hard to get specialized weapons on the Viper right now. We're really struggling with our one of our core critical strategic uh, areas that we're we're trying to incorporate in the Viper is you know advanced weapons. <clears throat> um, Jasm is one of them. Uh, Amram has been around forever. Uh, some of the some of the the guys around here joke we're just going to start calling it the Amram because it's no longer advanced. Uh, Raytheon will not be happy when they hear me <laughs> say that. But, uh, you know, we test things and we just state how they are. So uh, the AMRAM has been a great weapon, uh, but the Air Force is super late to need on a new, 
medium range uh, air-to-air weapon. And then if you look at some of the things China, China is doing, uh, they're outpacing us on the missile technology. Um, and it's not for lack of uh, scientists and engineers. We have the best in the world. We really do. It's the it's the acquisition process that is stymieing the whole program. Uh, that's really unfortunate. Um, you know, if you set these guys free with some Cheetos and some Mountain Dew uh, in their basement, man, they're going to build you some amazing things. <laughs> Uh, if we just take a little bit of, of risk and start doing things faster. Uh, as an example, SAW, uh, standard attack weapon is going to be an F-35, uh, essentially harm replacement in the future. Um, there's there's some issues in development of that weapon um, that, you know, their primary threshold platform, the F-35, is going to struggle to test that thing for a while, right? It takes a while to uh, get all the not only the bulkheads modified so they can carry it, but, you know, the, the mission systems updated. So, you know, the Viper is raising our hand quietly in the corner going, we're, we're happy to try to help you as quick as you can get this weapon evolved, right? If you want to carry it on our platform, if you want to do weapon steps, if you weapon separations, if you want to, you know, essentially take that missile from uh, PowerPoint up into something that is rapidly uh, developed uh, and get it out there. And if it never goes on a Viper, that's great. But at the same time, you know, we want the Air Force to know that we're we're the people that they can count on uh, to try to get some of this stuff done. Because, you know, in the big scheme of things, it's like it is it is a team fight. And, you know, to to get parochial about your your desires and the things that you want in your platform, you just can't do it. Can't do it anymore. It's just not going to happen. Um you asked about like the future. So, you know, I don't, I don't foresee saw really being a fully integrated weapon. Maybe it will be, I don't know. Uh, we're here to help, uh, the air force if they want. The thing I think, uh, will be really cool. If we can pull this off, we're doing a demo with Starlink right now. So, uh, um, anybody's familiar, uh, there's this, uh, pretty smart dude. Uh, he lives out in Texas called <laughs> Elon Musk. Uh, I want to say he's got like something over 3000 satellites in low earth orbit now. Right. Uh, and he's essentially built a commercial uh, constellation of uh, internet, satellite internet. And, you know, the government is looking at potentially, you know, buying a little bit of his bandwidth uh, and using that to communicate. So we're going to we're going to set up a demo where we send some uh, encrypted video uh, through through space uh, in these little, you know, RVs uh, from Hill into an F-16 CDU cockpit. We've already. We've already got the code. We're going to, you know, run them through attack lanes so they're encrypted and then uh, encryption and then uh, show the Air Force that it can be done. Uh, hopefully we can find some money and find an antenna that's conformal. It'll fit on the jet because right now they're, they're uh, buy off the internet cots, if you will, commercial off the shelf. Uh, antenna is a little too big for the uh, Viper and there's real no good place to put it. Uh, but we're, you know, that's something that TESS is doing. We're, we're trying to lead that effort with the development guys and we're trying to convince all the other people out there are like, hey, man, we got some good ideas. We could probably do this. Um, you know, we're working with the SDPE. I'm going to butcher their acronym, but uh, Strategic Development Program Environment or Initiative. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not prepared on that acronym, but, uh, you know, these guys, it's a new process where, uh, you know, the labs and the program office kind of work together. They bring money, they bring tech, and they try to get it uh, into, uh, you know, operational areas faster. Um, you know, you guys talked about Sibbers in the past and, you know, we're doing Sibbers with a couple companies trying to, to find some 
uh, new hardware maybe that will replace some of our new hardware. <laughs> I know that <laughs> I actually said that. Yeah, we're 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 trying to get ahead of the DMS and Moore's law where you start looking at your next next thing even before you put the new thing in the jet. Especially when the new thing's not that yeah. awesome anyway. Um <laughs> Yeah, man. So I think Starlink's going to be great. I think if we can get our hands on some uh, advanced weapons, that will help, especially as we bring on some of these uh, programs of record like the ESA, like iViews. So iViews is uh, is about a year from being in a developmental test aircraft here at Eglin. It's the integrated Viper Electronic Warfare Suite. <clears throat> so no more potted EA pods. Uh, the plan is to put a new digital RWR on the jet that uh, talks to the ESA on a on a pulse by pulse basis. And if you know how fast ESAs are, that's pretty stinking fast. Um, yeah. I'm a fat and slow kid, so I don't know what fast is, but everybody tells me it's pretty cool. Uh, and then you know it's going to have internal EA, so that's pretty awesome not to have a pod anymore and have uh, a mo- modern internal digital uh, Durfum jammer inside the Viper that will make it, uh, that'll make it pretty awesome, uh, in a contested environment. You know, we're still not fifth gen. We never will be fifth gen. We don't claim to be fifth gen. Uh, we are physically small, um, you know, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna win the RCS game, uh, in, you know, China or Russia fight, right. You know, we're still John Boyd's Viper. Uh, we're still not LO. Um, there's tricks you can do to get better, uh, but without redesigning the airframe and making yourself a, you know, F-22 or F-35 or whatever NGAT is, then, uh, then yeah, it's, you got to do what you have, you know, make with what you have. So, yeah, I'm really excited for Starlink. I'm really excited for some of the weapons uh, and then definitely excited for this iViews piece of equipment. It's going to take a while to, uh, to mature and get to the calf, but, but, uh, you know, it is a uh, 804 rapid acquisition program. We do have money secured for all the test assets. We're struggling uh, to commit to the half, you know, to to fund this right. And when they're struggling to field, uh, they're trying to fund right now what I call, this is the best analogy. I love this one ever. So we're currently, our Air Force is at Mad Max level. Um, and where half is trying to go in like the next 10 years is to Star Trek. And like, you know, there's really no good... <laughs> ramp up in like the next decade to go from Mad Max to Star Wars. Um, and Viper is, even though we're part of the Chiefs four plus one strategy, uh, you know, Congress wants to go cheap with us and try to spend as little money as possible uh, and and use our, our platform mainly is like, like Comex says, General Kelly, the, the shock absorber to the calf, help with pilot, you know, uh, attrition and you know, make sure that we're producing fighter pilots to go fly this, you know, next gen air dominance aircraft that's that's on its way. It's gonna be it's gonna be awesome, I promise. I think. I don't know. All right. <laughs> yeah, it won't be hit by all the acquisitions issues, I guaranteed. The uh one well, so it's funny you kind of talk about that integrated uh defensive suite, you know, where things actually talk to each other. Cause somebody asked me uh how the fusion machine was in the F sixteen. And I was like, I'm the fusion machine. That's right. Like that's this, it's me like hitting a button and like flipping. Okay. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to turn this button, the switch now because this thing happened and it's just non-existent. So it'd be really nice if these things were just part of, again, like 
the vast majority of the fighters that we own are the F-16. So it'd be, it'd be nice to have those be really, really good. One question I have is, uh, have you, do you guys know who Stuart Wagner is? Um, I, I'm unfamiliar with the name. So Stuart Wagner is the, uh, was it the software development officer? Um, but he's, he's the, the Mountain Dew dude. He is, I mean, he was in the army for a little bit, uh, but, uh, for a little while, he is a software guy. You guys have heard of the hackathons. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so I had him yeah. on the show a, a couple weeks ago, and he is—he's saying exactly the same. Sadly, we all seem to be saying the same thing. Like we need to do it faster. It needs to be, you know, the rapid portions. And and but he's talking about like, hey, there are people who can solve the problems that we don't let in the room because they don't have the classification or they don't have the need to know. And so he's creating these hackathons to provide people the need to know. And what he's doing is just giving them, even at the classified level, he, he, they walk in, they have the need to know, and they have the, uh, like the classifications, uh, and there he's like, Hey, do what you will with this code. And it's like code from a fifth gen fighter. And then they say, oh, cool, look at all these things we figured out. Uh, and it's literally people uh, like one of my buddies uh, who's a fighter pilot software developer uh, that he just they can just write that stuff because they're smart people and they, they understand how to, how to develop these things, like you said. And, and they're not this behemoth of a company who builds airplanes who also is now writing code. You have people who are just code writers writing code and surprise they do they do a much better job uh so now that's exciting it sounds like we're moving in the right direction so that's good uh vader one one of the things that blake said earlier i i kind of break it down uh simpler and just say you know the the key to success in this business whether you're a tester or a program office guy or the you know the cheeto eating mountain dew drinker is being multilingual so that's why test is so frustrating and hard for a lot of people because it takes almost a year just to even uh, understand the the lingo. And, and here I am 12 years later, I, I still don't know what half of it means. I am a big dumb animal and a knuckle dragger. I told you I'd screw this, uh, this, uh, this podcast app <laughs> up. So sorry about that. Um, but anyway, like just, just if you can speak the other folks language and also get a little bit of perspective uh, it goes a super long way in this job. And if we can get uh, our coders, um, the guys, you know, that are making the sausage, if you will, um, get them to speak a little bit of fighter pot, it goes a super long way. Our chief flight test engineer, B-Hop, he's, he's an amazing human. The, the dude has a 50-pound nugget. But what's amazing about B-Hop, he flies his own plane. He used to jump out of airplanes with parachutes and stuff uh, until he had, you know, his kids. And he, uh, he, I mean, the guy understands fighter aviation better than some of the young wingmen out there. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. You know, like we fly in D models and uh, I let him, I let him do strafe passes from the backseat. It was amazing. Uh, He's, he is qualified. He understands it. He knows the Viper. Uh, we've started bringing some of our software guys um, because you know they're all they're all cleared and they uh, they're all government and it's really easy to get a backseat ride. So the government sucks at like giving monetary bonuses and taking care of uh, civil servants. But if we can do the small things like bring them out to Eglin uh, or Nellis when Nellis had D models, they don't have any D models now. Um, 
it's really, really cool for them to come out and actually like sit in the jet and see what the heck is going on and what we're doing. And that, that goes, that goes a long way. Um, you know, we go, we were just out at Hill and we go, we went for what's called a pilot early, like where we engage with our software design guys before they release the software. And we sit in their uh, systems integration laboratory, the still, and we go through and they watch us sit in the cockpit and run through some of the things that we're interested in. It's really awesome for them to go over the shoulder and go, ah, oh, man, I never even knew you guys would use that. Like we always thought that thing was just like, you didn't even use that <laughs> button. Uh, and, and then you have that dialogue right then and there and go, Hey man, like, okay, let me tell you a little bit about air to air and why I'm doing this with the radar. And they're like, Oh my God, that's amazing. So those are the interactions that need to happen. And it's hard to execute that on, uh, an active duty timeline in test where a guy's here for, you know, two, two and a half years, and it takes him just a year to even understand half of the acronym. So really important to have a good core of contractor civilians. Uh, Africa, we've kind of cornered the market out here at Eglin. We've got a few really, really good Africa dudes. And most of the test directors, actually all the test directors for the 53rd wing, they're all Africa guys. So Africa um, arts are, are uh, really helping out, I think, the, uh, the active duty. So uh, thank you, active duty. I'll take a pay bump anytime you want to give it to me. There's your plug. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you know, stuff is happening that is, that is progress. And, you know, we're, we're getting people those good deals and we're, we're saying, Hey, we can't give you the pay bump. We can't, we can't do some of the stuff the private sector can't, but the private sector can't put you in the back of an F-16. So, you know, there's that. But Blake, do you feel like, uh, there's a lot of rewarding stuff that you get to be a part of same thing, you know, just it's, it may not be monetary, but it just may be something that you get to enjoy seeing the, uh, spoils of your hard work. Yeah, absolutely, Vader. Um, just like personal backstory, uh, whenever I was coming out of Auburn, um, I had a pilot slot, but uh, in the Air Force's good providence and grace, they uh, I, they took it away from me um, after I couldn't pass color vision in one of my eyes. Um, and so it, it was like by sheer happenstance that I was able to come here to this assignment. And so um, I'm, I'm married, I have two kids, and uh, just telling my wife, I was like, wow. I said, just being able to hang out with these guys, pick their brains, learn from their experiences, and uh, and see what they do on a daily basis. That's that's reward enough, especially when they when they turn around or, or like during the debrief and say that worked per design um, in a good way, not in a bad way. Um, and uh, you know, to be able to see the uh, the young guys um, who are active duty at the 85th. Um, and the 40th who are fresh out of WIC or, or TPS um, to see them um, before they step back out into the calf um, say, yeah, this is, this is what we've always wanted. This is what we've always needed. I'm so glad we have this. And they're leading that uh, integration with the rest of the calf of these new systems and tactics. Um, that's reward enough um, for me. Um, but getting the opportunity uh, just from um, previously um, as a test engineer to execute missions and um, work with all the, the cool tech, um, as cool as it can be on the, from a government standpoint, um, during mission execution, 
um, all the way to um, having the opportunity to um, fly back seat with uh, these guys and uh, do some stuff um, from a mission standpoint up in the air. Uh, that's just, you can't put a price tag on it. So, Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's so much fun. And it's, you know, actually the, when I was leaving McIntyre, the 422 was uh, like top on my list. And, um, you know, smartly for the test world, they picked Golden Lemaire because he's the best of us. So I was like, all right, good choice. Yeah, it's better than me. But uh, so I didn't get to go to the 422. And uh, but I always thought the OT side is just I mean, it's it's the coolest part. It's you know, you get to test stuff out. You get to bring new things to the warfighters and you get to I mean, it's it's the ultimate chess match. You know, you're trying to figure these things out and what's good, what's not good. The uh I got a chance to go to AFRL at Kirtland uh, while they were doing a uh, a hell uh, pod test, you know, high energy laser pod. And uh, we were ripping around and, and same thing, you know, the engineers flew like an engineer thought a fighter pilot would fly. And we're like crazy closure, like ripping right across the top of these things while we're trying to use this pod. And they're like, we had no idea that's how you'd fly. And it's like, oh yeah, like we got stuff to do. You know, we got, we're busy people. Um, uh, well, great. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time. I apologize. It's been so much. Uh, but how can people kind of get in contact if they're trying, you know, wanted to work with you? Just say, hey, thanks for all the hard work you do. Uh, how would you like people to reach out? Yeah, Vader, thanks for having us. Uh, for for me, the, probably the easiest way is uh, uh, LinkedIn. So Ben Rex Weissack on LinkedIn. Uh, pretty easy. Uh, throw it out there. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, say, Hey, what's up? Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on the book of faces now. Um, trying to branch out a little bit and, uh, you know, maybe see if the, who's going to exploit me or, <laughs> or whatnot. Uh, but yeah, you can find me, uh, pretty much. I don't, I don't have any, any fun or cool names, right? It's just Rex Weissack, yeah, on any one of those uh, medias. Awesome. Blake. Yeah. Vader. Thanks for, uh, having us today. Um, yeah, you, you may have difficult uh, difficulty finding Rex. Um, his uh, profile picture on LinkedIn is a little outdated, but you can, it's, his face still looks the same. Um, uh, as far as uh, as far as my outreach, it, it's it's LinkedIn, um, and I just go by Blake Lockler. Um, I don't write too many inspiring posts. I mostly just uh, watch what people are doing. Uh, sometimes make memes out of it, and uh, and then contribute every once in a while. Um, but looking forward to. Um, just proliferating this episode and some of your other uh, work that you do with Kodiak Shack um, on my profile. So thanks. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate both of you being on here. You both have a uh, open invitation whenever you come back because it's always fun uh, talking about the test world. So uh, everybody, if you want to contact the show, uh, info at KodiakShack.com and check our check out our website, KodiakShack.com. Uh, thanks again, guys, for being here and uh, have a good one. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live 
bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.